Today's guest is Arena Gananova. Now, Arena's work speaks for itself, but since this episode is in our highlights reel of data science, I wanted to quickly go over a few points of why I think Arena belongs in this highlight reel and what really impresses me about her work. First of all, it's a really solid piece of interdisciplinary data science and medical work. Now, of course, I'm a bit biased because she's working in patient vital science, and I love that topic, but there's more to it than that. Frequently, as data scientists, there's always this uh, urge or this draw to maximize the sort of technical wow factor of your work. And what I think that arena really does is balance the uh, need for interesting technical work and sound technical work with uh, keeping in mind what the end user and how the end user is going to be using her data science output. And so I think that arena handles this very well. And the reason that's especially impressive is because when you're in a research domain, there's always that draw to try to maximize the technical wow factor. And I think that what she's done here represents something of a risk and some bravery in pursuing very sound technical work that is truly useful. The second thing that's really nice is that she's curated a number of data sets in her area. I think that's just a massive boon to the field so that other people can look at this, try new ideas. Third, I've always been impressed by Arena's ability to include other data scientists in this process. Sometimes as a very experienced data scientist, it's easiest just to truck ahead by yourself and get work done. But in this case, she has included a large number of graduates and undergraduate students so they can gain that critical experience. So I really re respect how Arena is helping build this community of data scientists and pr providing them with uh, stepping stones to improve their own skill set. And finally, what I think is most important is that Arena has really taken the time to build a deep understanding of her domain. She understands both the clinical aspects of her work and the actual data itself. Those are a bit separate and they take some time to appreciate. And the reason I think this is important is because it does take some bravery to not just charge off and try to do the most technically sophisticated thing that she can. Instead, what Arena has done is she's built a very sound foundation. She understands her data extremely well. And the reason that this is useful is that now when she starts building up the technical sophistication of her work, She's going to be on very sound footing in order to make those decisions. So I think that Arena's scientific intuition around this area is very, very impressive. And as I said at the beginning, Arena's work speaks for itself, and now I'll let it do that. Enjoy the show. Hi, Arena. Welcome to the show. Uh, to Thank start you. off, yeah, let's uh, let's introduce yourself and your work. I think you already know why I was so excited to have you on. But yeah, if you could just introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, so hi everyone. Um, I'm Irina Gainanova. I'm Assistant Professor of Statistics um, here at Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas. Um, so as a statistician, I'm excited about statistical methods for biomedical data. Um, most of my work have been focused on multi-omics data. However, recently I became really interested in wearable devices, um, in particular in data from continuous glucose monitors. Um, so today I would like to talk a little bit about um, why we're interested in this data, what is the underlying motivation for collecting it, and some of the work that we've done in this area. Yeah, so I think, Irina, uh, you're offering several really nice things here, whereas a lot of data science presentations, you might see what the person does and say, oh, that's cool, but I can't really do it myself. In this case, in fact, you can because of the R packages that you set out, um, because you've had this nicely curated data, which is really nice uh, for the data of this nature. It's not every day where you can just Google, you know, I would like this type of vital sign data and have some really nicely curated data in this regard across multiple studies, across multiple patient cohorts. So I think one of the really nice things about this is that if you like what she does, you can actually grab it online. And especially for, for example, any uh, 
undergrads or master students who might be looking for an easy project where you don't have to spend a lot of time um, trying to find the data before you can hop into the analysis. Like here, it's here in big glowing letters. Here's a place where you can look for it. And actually, um, to kind of follow up on that, the reason this repository exists is because I had an amazing team of undergraduate students who spent a lot of the time searching the internet, looking for this type of data, trying to see how to process it, trying to get this information out. And I should say that a lot of this data is curated by other repositories that have a certain user agreements, but we really wanted to have one place where the person can go and kind of see a quick look of what's out there. Um, and I will, I will show you more about how this looks later. Yeah, and as a just a real quick interjection, one of the things that I like about this is I can guarantee you any of those undergrads probably have some really sweet offers now because they were involved in this. Um, so at least one of them does. There, yes, there you actually. go. Yeah. So just like it's a good example where no matter where you are in your data science career, if you're adding value, doing something cool, and you can have something to show for it, people can look at this and say, "Ah, this is what this person did. This is valuable. I would like them to be involved in my own projects and add value that way." So I think that this really doubles down on the value that no matter where you are, if you can find a way to add value and let people know about it, you're on a good track. So uh, you've done well by the um, the undergraduates in your care. And that was actually one of the most rewarding part of this experience because. Um, my typical projects that I did before this, I wouldn't be able to involve undergraduates as easy um, because there was like uh, maybe a lot of higher level math or higher level computing that they just wouldn't have the coursework for. Um, but I really like this one because I was able to involve undergraduates, not just from statistics, but I have a biomedical engineering major, engineering major, computer science, and having this diversity of perspective really really help to make this project go forward. Yeah, I think that one of the really nice things about Biosign Monitoring, of course, I'm extremely biased in this regard, but it is a giant open field and people of practically any skill set, as long as they're willing to work hard, can add value to it. Um, where, you know, you don't need to have a PhD in machine learning to be adding value and finding interesting things out about patients via their vital signs. You know, some of the most basic statistical methods that are out there can be used and actually garner real clinical value. So they might not be the fanciest thing from a technical perspective, but as far as the clinical value, they're probably close to about, you know, 80%, 90% there just by doing that initial analysis, categorizing patients, looking at the magnitudes, fitting some relatively simplistic distributions and understanding what that distribution implies for data that falls outside of usual ranges. Absolutely, yes. And I think there is really value to having a diversity of perspective because someone who has a training um, as a machine learner or as a statistician, even if they have a PhD, there is no way they could have the same type of biomedical training that someone who is a biomedical major. And so I purposefully seeked out some of the team members who have this training because when we're looking in the literature that is not statistics or machine learning literature, it helps enormously when you have someone in your team who can understand it better. Um, and that, that adds a lot of value having the subject matter expert. Yeah, and just to break that down, you know, it for things like vital signs, there are multiple subject matter experts that are needed. First of all, um, the physiology, the actual human body, the heart pumping, the organs, the uh, every gross squishy part of the human being, that is what is fundamentally generating the data. And um, 
uh, you know, the comp the chemical composition of someone's blood. That's um, that's what's actually generating the data. And then there's a further bit to that. So aside from the physiology, then there's the actual makeup of the device. So the mechanical engineering elements to that. And once we've uh, once you have the mechanics of that, so there's one layer for the physiology, one layer for the mechanics. Then of course there's the next layer for the signal processing element. And after signal processing, that's when we just get the data. So prior to that data, there are at least three subject matter domain experts who are needed. And I've just thrown a quick fourth, the clinical element. So actually understanding how people operationally use that. So it's one of those things where no matter where you are, if you're a generally scientifically inclined person, you can burrow in on one of these ideas and be embedded in a useful team. Absolutely. Cool. Well, um, how about this? It's cool work. Let's let's hop over to the presentation and then we'll discuss it at the end. All right, sounds good. So today I'll talk about some uh, challenges and opportunities for continuous glucose monitoring data and some of the work that our team has done. Uh, but first of all, I really want um, to talk a little bit about the context where this data comes in. Um, and it comes in the context of diabetes, which is the disease that affects around 450 million worldwide. Um, so as many of you know, as we eat food with carbohydrates, our body processes this food into the glucose. And the glucose is what our body needs uh, for energy. However, um, to produce energy from glucose, we need the insulin that is produced by our pancreas. And so pancreas produces insulin that then um, transfers this glucose into energy that we can use. And what happens in diabetes is that this step where the pancreas produces insulin and the insulin is used by our body, um, it's not working as expected. And specifically, there are two main types of diabetes. Um, in type one, the pancreas stops producing insulin altogether. Um, so then your body cannot transfer any of the glucose into energy and you just have glucose accumulating. Um, in type two, you have what's called an insulin resistance, which essentially means that um, you cannot use the insulin that your body produce effectively. Um, and type two is the most common type and it's around 85 to 90% of all diabetes cases. So the reason this is bad is if you have high blood glucose, um, then over time you're doing nerve damage and nerve damage leads to increased risk of cardiovascular diseases, retinopathy, cognitive dysfunctions, et cetera. Um, and unfortunately, there's not a cure for diabetes. So the main treatment goal is to have what's called an improved glucose control. So to have the glucose within the normal range. Um, and that can be achieved using tailored insulin administration, which is primarily relevant for type one diabetes, um, although some type two as well. And also combination of diet and exercise. Um, and the standard clinical assessment for how good you are at controlling your glucose is the levels of hemoglobin HbA1c, and the lower the levels are of that hemoglobin, the, the better is your glucose control. So first of all, what is most commonly done, and this is most commonly done even today, to control the glucose, you need to know where your glucose is. And so what most people with diabetes do is the finger pricks. So you take um, a little bit of a blood from your finger, you put it on this test strip, insert it in the meter, and the meter tells you the level of your blood glucose at that time point. Um, and if you have type one, this is typically done four times a day, uh, once before each meal and once before going to bed. Um, if you're type two, it's recommended you do it once per day. However, um, I know that many people with type two don't do it at all. 
Now, is this enough? Um, and this is actually what the normal healthy blood glucose profile will look like. So um, here is the 24-hour period from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Um, what you can see is that you have peaks in your glucose, and these peaks are a result of the meal intake. So um, you eat, you have some carbohydrates, your blood glucose goes up, and then over time it goes down. You eat again, and the same thing happens. Um, and then overnight, your blood glucose tends to go down. So this is what's considered a normal prototypical profile. You have the spikes as a result of meal intake. The range of values, the normal range of values is somewhere between 70 and 120 milligrams per deciliter. Um, and this is uh, uniform across gender, race, uh, and other factors. So you can treat these values as absolute. However, this normal profile is not just like one fixed level that you're always at. It's very non-linear trend and it's highly dependent on the environment. And if the normal profile is like this, then the profile of a subject that has diabetes is even more complicated because um, the system, your body doesn't function as expected. So in this context, you can hopefully see that if I just, even if I do four finger pricks, like a person with type one diabetes typically will do, I would only have four time points of this profile and that does not give me enough information of the glucose dynamic over the day. So finger pricks provide extremely limited information and this is where continuous glucose monitors or CGMs come in. Um, here you have a Dexcom G6. I believe the most recent is actually a Dexcom G7. Here you have an Abbott monitor. There are small devices. Um, the early versions went on the stomach. This ones go on your arm up here. They have a super tiny little middle that's inserted so that it can reach the blood. And they measure your blood glucose continuously. Uh, Dexcom measures it every five minutes. Um, Abbott measures it every 15 minutes. So because they give you so much information on your blood glucose continuously throughout the day, this um, devices, CGMs, can potentially be paired with an insulin pump, another device that can automatically administer insulin to your body. In this case, you have a CGM meter that tells you what the blood glucose is. You have the pump that has the ability to put insulin into your body. So all together, um, the system creates an artificial pancreas. And you can potentially um, use these devices to more accurately assess um, how far is a person with diabetes from a normal profile, how bad is their glucose control. Um, but I purposefully put this words potentially here because there are a lot of challenges in, maxim in maximizing this potential of CJMs. Um, so the first challenge is how do we assess the glucose control and variability? And again, recall that the standard clinical measure of assessment is the levels of hemoglobin A1C. Um, typical treatment goal is to reduce these levels to below 6.5%. Um, and from a biological perspective, what this um, represents is your average glucose values over the last two or three months. Um, and the CGM, because it gives you this profile on every five minutes for the Dexcom, it really allows you to have a more um, deep view of what happens to the glucose. And so naturally there is a question, can we have new clinical metrics that are more rich and personalized beyond just average and beyond just A1C? 
Um, and again, to illustrate why average is not enough. So here you have two different subjects. Um, both the subjects are subjects with type 1 diabetes. Um, it's one day of measurements for each of the subjects, and the red line represent the average glucose value. So the first thing, um, if you recall the normal numbers, so between 70 and 120, you can see that this subjects go much higher than that. Um, this one goes up to 400. They also go lower. Um, this one goes to 50, which is also very dangerous. These two subjects have exactly the same mean, but their profiles look very different. Um, can we try to understand which one is better, which one is more normal? Um, how much better? How do we assess this? And one of the challenges in this field actually is that there's a lot of different CGM-based metrics that have been proposed, which are essentially um, statistics that can be extracted from this data that try to go beyond the mean. And there is a really nice paper in Diabetes Technology and Therapeutics that summarizes more than 40 of them and more continues to get developed. Uh, but a lot of these metrics are very highly correlated. They essentially measure um, often the same thing, but slightly different angles. And in general, some of them are so complicated that it's not very easy to implement. And there appears to be a lack of general consensus on which of these metrics are most relevant for the clinical outcomes. And part of this lack of consensus is actually due to the this device has been relatively recent. Hemoglobin A1C, this has been a measure allowed for a long time. So we have uh, long-term longitudinal studies where we can see the association with long-term complications. Um, CGMs have not been around for a very long time. So some of these metrics, we just don't know what's the long-term effect of having them high or low. So one thing that we did to try to address this is develop an R package iGlue standard for interpreting data from continuous glucose monitors that allows you to at least calculate all of these metrics on any CGM data that you have. Um, this package is available both from GitHub and CIRAN, um, and this is the package website that has more information. Um, we also have a preprint that's currently on BioArchive that kind of works you through um, some of the functionality and explains a little bit more how to use this package using the examples. Um, it's currently under the review. And really what we wanted to do here is, first of all, we want to implement all the metrics out there. So the new metrics constantly keep being developed, proposed, but there is not really a one place for a new researcher to evaluate them and compare versus each other. Um, so that's one thing that we did. Um, secondly, we wanted to include various plotting options to help people visualize the data and look at CGM data from different perspectives. Uh, we included public data from five subjects. So if you're just starting and you want to see what this data looks like, um, this data is part of the package so you can look at it. And the biggest thing for us was that there were some other R packages before, but they required pretty intensive programming experience to be used. And we really wanted this to be something that clinicians can use um, if they wanted to. So we have a shiny app that one can use with a package that does not require any R programming experience. Um, so to illustrate, um, this is kind of how we present the documentation. So any metric that you may be interested in is summarized on the website 
It gives you the reference um, to the paper where that metric has been originally introduced, uh, function in the package, whether the metric takes the time into consideration or not. Um, we also provided um, a comparison of various metrics on this five example subjects. So um, recall that one thing um, that seems to be lacking is that a lot of these metrics are highly correlated. All of them keep being proposed. So it gets really confusing which ones are different and which ones are the same. So what I'm presenting here is a clustering of 40 different metrics across this five subjects with type 2 diabetes, where you can see, for example, that percent and range metrics, which is percent of time the subject spends within a certain uh, range of glucose levels, not surprisingly, they're highly correlated, but they're also related to some other more complicated metrics that you may not realize just reading their names. Similarly, you have um, a bunch of metrics that pretty much behave like a mean, but they have more fancy name and they have some slight differences. So we really hope that for users, um, this will help to see which metrics are the same, which ones are different, and how they behave on a particular data set. Um, so to demonstrate the Shiny app, um, I want to um, show you the link directly. So let me switch. So this is how it looks. So you just go to the website side um, with a shiny app and really the only thing you need is to have a csv file that have your subject id glucose value and time um, and then you can load the csv file so to give you an example um, so here we go um, if your column names have different names you can modify it here so here is the cgm data for subject one this is the data time stamp and glucose and now if you want to calculate metrics you just go to the metrics column and you pick the metric that you're interested in um, for example i can pick this great metrics that does not take any parameters and it automatically tells you all the values uh, that you can then export in any format that you want um, there is also various um, subtypes of standard deviation metrics. Those are actually more involved to calculate. And again, you don't need to have any R programming experience. You just load the data for CGM and it gets it here. Finally, we have uh, plotting capabilities that you can also export in various format. Uh, so here you can see the briefly what is this five subject data looks like. Uh, you have one panel for each subject. Uh, for subject two, you can see that there is this straight line right now. Um, that's because there is a subset of data that has been missing. Um, and we are actually working on an update to the package that will remove this plotting artifact. Um, we also did lasagna plots. Those are alternative visualization that help you see um, on average across 24 hour period what are the times that the subjects runs higher or lower? And again, you can create those plots using R or you can create those plots with shiny apps and see for yourself um, how various parameters affect the plot. Yes, um, so let me see. I'm gonna do the single subject um, and start with the unsorted one because it's the easiest to explain. Um, so in this particular case, um, you have subject one where um, you have various days for the subject 
And um, for each day, rather than having a line, you have colors corresponding to the glucose values with the gray being the missing measurements. Um, so for example, if you look at this third row from the bottom, you can see that on that particular day, the subject was low throughout the night. Uh, then they probably had breakfast. So there is a little bit of an up spike. Um, then you have some missing value, another up spike, a little bit missing, another up spike and going down again. So you can see visually what has been the trend from day to day. Um, and you can sort this so that you can see now the average patterns across 24 hours. So in particular, you can see that this particular subject tends to run the highest um, between uh, 3 p.m. and 8 p.m. during the day, and they tend to be lower um, at night. So we found that this visualization really helps um, to see the average patterns across hours and across subjects in a different way than just a standard plot. So uh, we go next. So another challenge um, is if you try to um, integrate the CGM data with other types of wearables data, for example, actigraphy data. Uh, this is the case with a, a HypeNose study for which BI is uh, Dr. Naresh Punjabi. Here we have subjects with type 2 diabetes who are not on insulin therapy. Uh, the glucose was measured using Dexcom G4 monitor that was put on the arm but they also have um, actigraphy measurements from a wrist-worn actigraphy device, ActiWatch 2. And essentially what this device allows you to do, it allows you to infer, this is the um, Philips Respironics proprietary software, and it allows you to infer what are the periods of time for each day uh, during which the subject has slept. So to give you an idea, when you integrate the times where the subject slept with the CGMs, uh, what you get is the results like this. So here are four different subjects, 24-hour period from six to six. And for each of the subjects, I can now draw a line that is the start of the sleep period and use blue to indicate the glucose during sleep versus red, the glucose during wake. And I can do this because I have the actigraphy measurements. And the reason we wanted to look into this is because in this particular study, the data is observational. So we don't know when the subject ate meals. We don't know what they ate. We don't know whether they exercised or not. Um, and so what you can see is that this data does not look at all like the normal profile we've seen before. There are peaks, but it's not clear which peaks are meals, which ones are not. Um, it's not clear how to combine this data. However, during the sleep, we don't have meals during the sleep. We don't exercise. So we expect the glucose during sleep to be much more homogeneous. Um, and so what we did here is we really wanted to characterize nocturnal glucose profiles based on the CGM measurements during sleep, because we can then eliminate the effect of this milk confounding. Um, this is what we found the data to look like. So here you have one um, display for each of the subjects. And each of the lines represent one sleep period. They are aligned by the estimated start of the sleep. And as you go uh, into the horizontal axis, it's hours of sleep. So what you can see is not only there is a lot of difference across the subject, but even for the same subject, let's say take subject 70186, one night they started at 250, another night they started at 100. 
So there is a large within subject variability from night to night in terms of how the glucose behave. And so from statistical perspective, this is what's called a multi-level functional structure. So for each subject, you have multiple curves of functions corresponding to the glucose during the sleep period. You see a lot of difference, not just between the subjects, but also within the subjects. And you have very heterogeneous profiles. Not all of the lines go down. You would expect that this, during the sleep, the glucose goes down, but that doesn't always happen. Um, it's also an even domain because, for example, for this top line on this subject, it ends at around slightly after six hours. And it's not because the data after that is missing, rather it's because on that particular night, the subject only slept six hours and then the subject woke up. So the data that comes after that will be glucose values no longer during sleep, but during the wake. Um, our first attempt to analyze this data is on this paper. And what our goal here was to really try to characterize what are the main directions of between subject variability as um, in the mean profile. So what is the subject specific mean profile where uh, we think of mean as across the nights for that subject. But we also wanted to look at what is the subject specific variance profile. So if we go back um, what you can see here is that in the beginning of the night, you tend to have more variation in your glucose than towards the end of the night. Um, and that should be expected because in the beginning of the night, you're still potentially influenced by the meals that you had by the dinner and how late you had it and what you had for dinner. But as you sleep and you go into the sleep, you would think that your glucose levels will stabilize, but they will stabilize at a different levels for different subjects. And so the standard deviation across the night is potentially different. Um, so what we found using um, functional principle component analysis is actually very scientifically understandable and potentially even expected, but it's nice that we have a statistical explanation for what happens. Overall, on average, your glucose level does go down overnight, as you would expect. So even though you don't see it necessarily for each subject and you don't necessarily see it for each night, overall, we know that it happens. Furthermore, if we start looking at what's the difference across the subjects, the main difference is in terms of the level. So this is the intercept. In other words, it changes how high or low across the night this curve is. And finally, the second main important direction of variability is the slope. In other words, this changes the rate at which you go down across the night. So what this tells us is that the difference across the subjects is in the night profiles, first, on average, behave as expected, goes down. Second, differs in the absolute value, which represents the average glucose levels. And third, changes um, based on the rate. So different subjects have different rate how fast they go down as they sleep. Um, and we observe very similar pattern for the standard deviation process. We actually see again that our initial observation that glucose the less variable as the um, as a person sleeps is correct. On average, you have a higher variability in the beginning and it goes down towards the end. As before, we see that the subjects vary in how much variability they have in general. Some subjects are more consistent from night to night than the others. And again, 
the subjects vary in the rate at which the standard deviation changes. So some subjects have a really what we call a funnel pattern where they get really tight in terms of the glucose the longer they sleep. And some subjects don't seem to have this regulation. And so they uh, one night they go flat and another night they go flat. They, go, they don't go down at all. And we're currently working on trying to understand more about what is the clinical relevance of the subject-specific difference. We see that it's connected to hemoglobin A1C, but we want to investigate more beyond that. And finally, the third challenge um, that I think is present, it's really hard to find this data and it's really hard to um, get into this because a lot of the data is private. Um, and so what our team has done, which we chatted a little bit about, is assembled this repository of um, public CGM datasets um, with links and description of covariates. Um, and this has been again assembled by the awesome team of Texas A&M undergraduate students. There is no way I could have done it without them. Um, and we have a wiki on this GitHub page. So for each of the data set, we have the reference, we tell you the sample size, what is the uh, type of diabetes. Most of it is type one, but we do have one data set for normal subject. Uh, and there is one for uh, pigs data actually. Um, it tells you the population group device and duration, and there is a data set specific page where you can find more information. Um, contributions are very welcome. Um, and with that in mind, I just wanted to show you that um, we're just starting, but we really wanted to make this data accessible to others. Um, so if you want to see summary of all our efforts that I have um, shown, um, I have a dedicated link on my website that summarizes the R package, the Shiny app, um, the work on CGMs during the night, um, and the dataset repository. If you have other public data sets that you know of that are not listed, contributions are very welcome. Um, finally, I want to give big thanks to Ciprian Krajnichanu from John Hopkins University and Naresh Punjabi, who was at John Hopkins and now is in Miami, um, because they were the ones that originally got to me into this research. Um, and finally, big thanks to amazing uh, group of Texas A&M students. Some of them have left the group, some of them have joined, um, but we're continuing doing research in that direction. Um, and I hope some of you will too. Thank you. Because I think that you brought up a number of things that show, I think, really good scientific reasoning behind the data science methods that you do. Um, one of them that I wanted to bring up was that you talked about uh, the difference between the granularity of measurements between the different uh, devices you had. So for example, you had Dexom taking about five minutes and then you had another device that was taking about 15 minutes between. Yes. Um, yep. yes. And so I guess the question is like, obviously the suitability of that is dependent on what uh, algorithms you're wanting to use. So for example, if you have an algorithm that requires really high granularity, um, it would not be suited perhaps for that 15 minute version. And maybe even a five minute um, granularity might not be suitable for other um, for other CGM uh, measurements. But just out of curiosity, for most of these basic clinical metrics out there, what was the granularity that you would need? So that's, that's a great question um, and it doesn't have a simple answer, unfortunately. So first of all, most of the devices that I know of that we looked at, they do five minutes. Um, Abbott is a little bit less 
Um, and I think we have one that has every minute rather than every five minutes. But I would say most of the time it's every five minutes that we see. Um, and you're absolutely right that there is a range of metrics. There's some metrics that are really just combine everything and ignore the time completely, um, such as the mean or overall standard deviation. And then if you're working with those metrics, then of course the granularity becomes irrelevant. Um, but there is a large number of metrics that are time specific and it actually gets kind of tricky. So in particular, there is one metric where you take the same time over each day. So let's say it's 1 p.m. and you want to calculate um, either, yeah, you want to calculate standard deviation at 1 p.m. exactly across the days. And then you want to average that not just across 1 p.m., but across 1.30 p.m., across 2 p.m., across 2.30 p.m., and so forth. So how many time points you can average over will depend on the granularity of the device. Because if the device is more granular, like Dexcom, you will have more time points to average. Since in both cases you are doing the averaging, though, I don't think it will make a huge difference um, from the methodological perspective. But there is one metric that does seem to change because for the hypnose data, we actually have both meters at the same time. And what we found is um, there is one metrics, which is a local metric of change. It's called the rate of change. So essentially what you are doing is um, you're calculating discretized derivative of that glucose profile at various time points. And then you um, look at the standard deviation of that derivative across the times. And that, by definition, because it's a discretized derivative, depends on the time gap that you're going to pick. Um, in the literature, it's recommended you pick 15. I have not found a more thorough 15 minutes. I have not found a more thorough explanation to why 15 minutes. Um, I'm actually really curious to figure out why, because <laughs> um, how much I do you bet? Satisfied. How much do you bet it was because whoever made that rule had a device that only allowed 15 minute potentially? Yes. Yeah, like yes, they, they right? maxed out at 15. Back when 15 was a big deal, they're like, oh yeah, 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 you need you need a 15 at least, and then uh, that's just all they had at the moment. Now that there's the one minute ones, they're like, oh no, 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 definitely keep it at 15. Yeah, so, so 15. So if you have 15, obviously for Dexcom, I can calculate it on 15, just taking the gaps. For Abbott, I can calculate it. But if you have 30, you couldn't calculate it. You'll have to do some kind of smoothing. But I think even more important part that comes in, all of those metrics that I have described, the way they are proposed, they work directly on the data as collected. And what I haven't even touched in my presentation is that this device is not gold standard. They do not measure glucose absolutely correct. They have errors. Um, and there is some characterization of what those errors are, but it's not precise. And so none of them are working on the smooth data. They're working on directly the data that you have. And if you try to smooth the data, then comes the question, how do you smooth? And that's where the granularity is going to matter, because you're going to have more points for Dexcom than you have for Abad. Yeah, and I guess just to hit on one point quickly um, before we go on, uh, the issue of measuring at the same time of the day for those who 
aren't quite as used to this. Um, so would the idea be that if assuming that patients are having meals at relatively consistent times throughout the day, that that is how you're standardizing. So while the time of day is helpful because you do have basic diurnal patterns, there's also a very explicit diurnal pattern in your eating habits. Yes, and actually the meals is the biggest complication because unless you have a study where you had standardized meals and knew exactly the meal times, most of the studies are not like that. So you would have this random peaks that you could not explain. And if you work with the data from type two subjects, then at least you know that they're not taking insulin or most of them don't. So if you see the peak, it's most likely some kind of food intake. But with type one, those profiles are so complicated that unless someone tells you exactly that this person had a meal at this time, there is no way you can deduce that. It's just not possible. So I think going back to what you said, this time standardization is sort of a proxy of trying to account for the fact that people tend to be habitual and have similar patterns from day to day and that on average the glucose tends to be lower overnight on average tends to be higher during the day but they by no way can account for those meals um, that's really difficult uh just as a quick point uh so there is the meal based variation um what about diurnal uh patterns within the absence of meals do we know much about that issue so for example say if someone were fasting do they still have the usual blood glucose change or what, what have we seen from that? That is a great question that I don't know the answer to because out of all the data sets that we found, only one of them actually has standardized meals. And what is even difficult for that one is we know the time when they were given standardized meals, we don't know what they did with other times. So to answer the question that you pose, you will need a study where you know for a fact that someone hasn't eaten during this particular period of time. And those studies are just not out there as far as I know. They're really, really hard to find. Um, so that, that creates a great challenge. But it's not just the meals. The exercise actually affects your blood glucose a lot. The stress affects your blood glucose a lot. And so we are continuously kind of talking about we want the blood glucose to be in this normal range and band. But the difficulty is that even for a normal person, like I don't have diabetes, I wear one of those monitors for four days, my blood glucose goes like this. And sometimes it doesn't go up when I eat and sometimes it does. And that's what makes it so challenging and why a lot of this metrics there, they're trying to extract some variability information but they can't really answer directly the questions that you may be most interested in. Yeah, that brings up another issue that I thought was really interesting. Um, so one of the problems here is that effectively one of the biggest sources of variability in these data sets is the meal intake, but we don't know when the meals were taken by and large. And this would of course become even more difficult when we were trying to apply it to sort of an open ranged data set where we're gonna be monitoring people as they go about their lives. Um, Fortunately, not everyone has a need to be, you know, wearing a, a, a CGM device, but still. Um, but one of the things I really thought was cool was um, that when you had this sort of ancillary data, the activity data, and one of the things you said was, well, uh, we need to identify uh, times when people are sleeping. 
So effectively, you had this extra data set, and you had a very practical scientific reason for wanting to sort of annotate or classify these salient sleeping periods, um, which means that you effectively had an automated cleaning process in there, which is something I think is pretty much anyone who's working in vital sign data, you need to have some automated cleaning processes in there. Um, could you talk about that, you know, this, this cool reason how your scientific goal led to a cool data science application? Yeah, so um, actually it was really fortunate for us that that actigraphy data was collected at the same time. And one way you can think of it scientifically, so there are various ways that people are diagnosed with diabetes. Um, I think the most standard now, now would be to do the blood test with hemoglobin A1C. And if it's above, I think, 6 or 6.5, you would be diagnosed as having diabetes. But there are other tests right out there. For example, um, for women during their pregnancy, they have to take oral glucose tolerance tests um, to see if they have um, developed um, diabetes during pregnancy, which is another type that I haven't even talked about. And that kind of is another way to assessing it. And then there's a third way. And the third way is let's not eat, go to sleep, or rather let's eat dinner, go to sleep, don't eat in the morning, come to the lab and take the test. And what we have discovered with this data by being able to combine the sectigraphy data with the CGM data is that your glucose does not behave like that during sleep. You would think, I mean, before I saw this, I was just like, surely it will go down. And for most people it does, but it doesn't always. It's much more complicated than that. So from the data science perspective, yes, it's really cool that we were able to merge those two data sets and there were really interesting data processing things. Like sometimes they're missing data, sometimes like the timestamp on the glucose and the timestamp on activity, they are not the same. So how do you merge them together? But scientifically, uh, we didn't even know that the night profiles are that different until we merged them and looked at them. Like, and for type two in particular, most of the data that we found is type one because CGMs are not typically put on people with type two. Um, so no one actually knows I mean, now there is more information how those profiles behave. And so that was really cool because scientifically we started with, oh, we just want to eliminate the meal effects, but our goal has evolved as a result of what we have actually seen. And I think that's a really cool interplay because you have a question, you do data analysis, and that informs your further question. Um, and that's what I've been enjoying a lot about this project. Yeah, it really is a sort of an endless rabbit hole of different places that you can go down. Um, one of the things that, that uh, you mentioned, uh, as far as one of, the, one of the places where I think that this data has a lot of value, something you uh, touched on, where you had these uh, long-term CGM studies prior to this continuous uh, mon monitoring capability. And it seems to me that, for example, say this was collected by either a person keeps a diary and we track that person over time, or alternatively, that they come into a doctor's office and they're essentially recorded longitudinally at given uh, time shots. That um, if you did it that second way, where someone is actually just coming in at some point and they just measure this person at one point in time during a day, that we saw the variability that an individual person could have in that data. And so essentially, if you're trying to collect it that, we'll just call it old fashioned way, um, 
you're essentially, your measurement has a massive error on it, depending on what time it was during the day and things like yeah, that. Absolutely. And actually what's being done is collecting A1C because A1C is already like an average of the two to three months. So it's a little bit more stable, but I think it's very, very limited amount of information because it's really just the average. And what I've shown you is that you can have very, very different profile with the same average. And what I found from the literature is that there is a lot of conversation and discussion on how much variability affects the clinical outcomes. Like if you have the same average, but you're very highly variable, is it worse from the clinical perspective in terms of a long-term damage that you do, is it better? And it's a, again, and that's the question that I don't think can be easily answered because it would require to collect measures of variability over longitudinally over a long period of time, but also it's not clear which variability metric to use because there is like 10 subtypes of standard deviation that one can calculate from the CGMs. Yeah, and also uh, just the issue of whether there's a time dependent component of variability for the metric. So not just that there's a time dependent component of variability, but whether or not the metric is maybe only relevant at a certain time period. So for example- and Yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, the one that the example that came to my mind where you might know that uh, the studies where they have that morning spike in blood pressure and they're trying to understand, you know, does this uh, what your body does right when you wake up in those first hour in that first hour or two, um, does that change your risk of stroke, uh, heart attack and things like that? And so it wasn't really where they were at the beginning. So it wasn't the resting pulse rate or the resting blood pressure. It wasn't their average daily. It was this one time period during the day when it spikes up and that was essentially your metric of risk. And so obviously you have mean in there, you have a dynamic, you have a derivative. Um, and it could seem that for this, obviously this is speculative, but um, that when you, you personally are investigating these elements where you might have to be looking at just subsets of the data. Yes, absolutely. And there's actually another complication that arises. So this meters, they are um, relatively new. And so Dexcom now is a G7. So what this tells you is that there was G1, G2, G3, and so forth. Um, and one of the data that I showed is G4. So if you want to try to do this longitudinal studies, you would have to use the same meter because otherwise, you're introducing the device bias into what you're collecting. And some of those meters require calibration, which means they depend on the user accurately calibrating the device and consistently, which is not always the case. Yeah, no, that's that's literally one of the most unrealistic things to expect of uh, users that, um, especially when you consider the populations, you tend to have these uh, types of like chronic diseases, especially for example, if they're later in life and therefore less technologically savvy, for example, that you're essentially saying person who has a chronic illness of this nature, we are now expecting them not only to manage their disease, which is like a never ending clinical problem, but now they also have to manage the accuracy of the device that is measuring part of their disease. And not to mention, most people don't actually want to know how sick they are. You know, fun fact, it's, it's like, hey, here's exactly how sick you are at this moment soldier on, you know, that, that isn't a, um, that isn't the most inspirational thing that most people have in their lives. No, no, absolutely not. And yeah. And I guess what I was trying to say with that is 
there is a lot of challenges on trying to do this longitudinally and have one of those metrics measured longitudinally for a long period of time. Um, but also, it's not like this data that we we get is like absolute. There is a device specific measurement, even if you calibrate it. And then there is issues of calibration that potentially is issue with the contact and the environment. Like someone who, let's say, used to walk to the office pre-COVID and have a 20 minute walk one way and 20 minute work another way every day. And then all of a sudden stopped and now does much less, let's say activity would have a difference in their blood glucose. But that difference would have to do more with the environmental factors than with any necessarily um, changes in the disease progression, so to say. And how do you account for that is another thing that I, I don't think can be easily done. No, it can't. Uh, it does seem like it, maybe even to some extent, it's an irreducible problem. Um, and for people who aren't working in uh, medical device domain, the issue of a device having one series of device even different devices within the same sort of series can actually be extremely variable. And then when you're actually talking about different versionings, uh, keep in mind that the device is usually updated and upgraded. So it's actually, its measurements will definitionally change because they are trying to actually correct for problems that were present in the last, in the last one, for example, like if you need um, to pass through the calibration measurements for FDA approval that yeah, effectively, it's always this moving target, and you definitely don't want to be taking one of those at face value. And this is where there is a balance, because again, if we go back and we look at the simple metric like an average, something like that is going to be much more robust to those type of changes. Uh, whereas if you derive some very, very complicated metric, it may be so dependent on the actual absolute measurements and the grid that you have, that it may not be generalizable to others. And so you always have to have this balance in mind. Yeah, that's honestly, that, that's that's a really good point. I, I, I wish that I had thought that one up and brought it up uh, to begin with, but yeah. So um, it's just the idea there that uh, some of these more basic metrics, you know, data scientists, we like to scoff at them a little bit because, you know, us doing the, doing the calculations for the complex metrics are how we sort of distinguish ourselves. But the fact is when we have these more simplistic metrics, um, they are robust um, to a, a, a lot of these changes. So for example, um, if you have a, they can fail in many ways too. And usually, so there's obviously this interplay, but yeah, no, it is, it is always a good point that the simpler the metric, the more at least robust it will be within with respect to itself. That was actually a very interesting point, which I'm not sure if I should disclose it or not, but I'm going to disclose it anyway. So we have this bioarchive paper that we submitted uh, for the publication that talks um, on our package and the metrics we have implemented. Uh, and we're working through the revisions right now. And one comment that we got, which I actually really appreciate because it came from the what sounded like a clinical diabetics perspective is clinician will not use all of this metrics. If a patient comes into the office, they will look at what's the percent of time they spend in the healthy range, what is the average, and that's going to be about it. So you are going to have a really hard time selling something much more complicated for an individual patient management or for the clinician assessing the glucose control. But when you start looking at the perspective of the population-based studies, where you want to differentiate either 
whether which metrics are more predictive of long-term complications, which are not, what's the variability across the subjects, and so forth. This is where I think for data analytic perspectives, it's really helpful to be able to calculate all of them and objectively, in a data-driven way, see what actually happens. And those are not quite the same goals. Yeah, so the idea there is uh, just trying to recap that there's, uh, if you're trying to do an epidemiological study, there might be value in these metrics that might not be as possible in a direct clinical setting. So in a clinical setting, they might want, they might have a certain limited ability to interface with the data in these metrics. But when you're branching out to some type of like epidemiological study or trying to essentially get a, uh, a digital phenotype of these patients, that then it's like, well, there's the value. Yes. And I mean, it could be that some of those metrics, I mean, if you can prove that one of the super complicated metrics undoubtedly predicts cardiovascular complication, then yes. But there is a challenge in proving that for the reasons I have described longitudinally. So I think it's good to have in mind that if you really want to go right away to the patient specific setting, you may not be able to get to very complicated metrics, but if you really want to do more of a digital phenotyping or uh, population-based studies, I think that's where there is a value to really mine the data more and understand what is the information that you're potentially missing. Because we know we're missing a lot when we take just the average, like there's no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah, and is there any, I mean, I guess that isn't too different than from many other uh, therapeutic options. So for example, many other therapeutics, you have to go through a vetting period before doctors are willing to use it. And I guess for this, it's different, of course, because we're only, uh, you're only offering information in this case. It's not you're saying, take this pill. Um, you're saying, here's an extra bit of information. But I guess it does have to go through that additional vetting phase that people, doctors will think, ah, yeah, here is an actually useful metric. And that initial data basically says, this metric's worth my time in looking at. Right. Yeah, so I think as far as the metrics go, there's different motivation for introducing different ones. But the way I think about it, I rather have them all implemented and be accessible and then decide which ones are useful or not, rather than take away some just because I don't have an easy way to calculate them. Yeah, and another bit is you'd hope that, uh, for example, Many clinicians are also uh, involved in some type of research. You know, obviously not all of them by any means, but there are a number of uh, clinicians who are involved in research, and it'd be helpful if they had these extra metrics at hand and understood what those metrics were. You know, if you're looking at, um, you know, their time outside of a certain range, uh, that is a quantitatively attuned clinician. And so, if they are going to say, "Well, I understand this." And I can understand these other five metrics as well. I might as well just click on them. And if they can be provided for free, um, just to sort of reference, are these actual useful things? And so um, to what extent do clinicians come up with sort of suggestions for these metrics or are they more driven from ideas from data scientists and statisticians? I think it's actually more driven from clinicians so far. Um, at least most of the metrics that we have implemented um, they're coming from places like Diabetes Therapeutics and Technology, Diabetes Care, those kind of journals. Actually, um, it has been really interesting because all of my work in this area, I guess, except for this one paper in biostatistics, it's really not targeting the statistics journals because 
you can do really complicated and fancy things and publish in statistics, but how are you going to reach out to people who may potentially use it? Um, and so what I found is that most of those metrics are really motivated by scientific rationale, but they don't always have a good implementation or they're like different groups that potentially have slightly different rationale. And so if you wanted to do like further prediction on machine learning, maybe you wanted to do, I don't know, neural nets and plug those metrics in, as someone who is not familiar with that literature, it also goes the other way, you wouldn't even know which metrics to consider or how they compare or which ones are related or not. So our goal was really twofold. On the other hand, for people in data science and machine learning, if they want to like extract the features go calculate all the metrics to say your features, and this is some information on how they're related. On the other hand, if you're a clinician and there is a paper by another group that came out, oh, we have this metric and you want to compare it with yours, okay, you can also calculate it without having to know R. Just put your data, get the metric and compare. Yeah, uh, this actually, it reminded me of another issue about a challenge in getting this type of work published, because obviously it is um, mainly driven by certain types of scientific intuition. Um, but of course, the metrics themselves are already created. Um, so uh, from the sort of review perspective, you know, that's not a novel element. Um, the data sets might have already been created for another purpose. That's not a novel element. And so, um, and obviously the statistics themselves, the statistical elements for many of those metrics are fairly mundane and the, yeah. but the problem is like it's still massively scientifically valuable and so there's this sort of it seems like there's a bit of a, a disconnect between doing some really good scientific work and having these sort of fancy statistical novelty that would attract the attention of many viewers uh, so in my view of course i think that this stuff is very important that it provides a good scientific foundation it is data science um However, it, it, there's also an element there where I think a lot of people, they're demanding novelty. And when people demand that novelty beyond the science, the science can be compromised in some ways. I think really the best way you can do it is be really passionate about the science. Um, I've been lucky in a way that I'm really passionate about CGM to the point that I'm willing to do and excited to do this kind of work regardless of whether it's going to be published or not. And I know that a lot of people don't either have that privilege or um, maybe less willing to compromise. Yeah, I yeah that 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 it is nice to have you in our field, a someone who is a scientist first. Um, I think that too, too many times statisticians, many statisticians don't forget that they're scientists first, but also many do, and that they forget that, um, you know, that the scientific inquiry is why we do this, um, not just for the sake of crunching numbers. Um, some people might just do it for crunching numbers, but really the reason that people actually value the field is because that this is one of our tools for scientific inquiry. Well, and I think honestly, the one of the most exciting part about being the statistician is the data and the science and trying to address it quantitatively. And I just had to realize what is the data and the science that I'm passionate about. And I think I, I realized that this is what it is. And once I realized that it's a little bit easier to, uh, to not be as swayed by the common trends. 
Yeah. And I'm just, I mean, you also, you can eat your cake and have it too. Cause you do have your bit where, you know, you are doing your automated sleep detection from, you know, ancillary data sets and things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of really cool data science problems that pop up in the process of you being a good scientist. So it seems like you get to have a lot of fun with your data analysis while also fundamentally being a very good scientist. Yeah. And to be fair, there's a lot of statistical, not complicated statistical problems that we would like to address with this data. There's a lot of functional um, data analysis problems. There are some machine learning problems. Um, and I would really like to address those and we're working on some of them now. But I think what has been really exciting about this is going all the way down to the base and a kind of having that type of connection um, with the data before you go and back all the way up. Um, and that has been a really rewarding thing. And one thing that it allows me to do is actually to work with a lot of undergraduate students, as I mentioned, not just graduate students, and excite them about that, um, which you couldn't do as easily if you do some more fancy projects. Yeah, and I'll double down. Like, if, let's say, let's say that there's the weirdest, world's weirdest horse racing track where you could take bets on data scientists for actually accomplishing something useful. I'd have to say that if I had to bet between someone like you who has really understood the basics and is willing to put off, because I, I, I'm interested in doing the fancy stuff. No doubt you understand the fancy stuff, the functional analysis, you know, CGM data, screams, functional analysis. But at the same time, you've, you're putting in your dues and really building up that good base of knowledge so that when you finally do the fancy machine learning work, it's on a very stable basis. And so your work is less likely to be derailed by challenging data because you understand the data very well. So I think that really bodes well that you will ultimately have an accelerated track and accelerated productivity because you have such a strong basis. Whereas if someone just rushed in and said, you know, I'm going to apply neural nets to, I don't care what the data is. I'm just going to do it. Um, you know, it, it's a very weak foundation because the moment the data is challenging in some way, they don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to pre-process their data um, and things like that. They don't know how to, as you did, identify very salient clinical elements that should be removed from the analysis. So things like that. I think, I think that is, if, if I were a betting guy, I'd bet that you were, uh, on the right track to doing something very powerful and that you should have an acceleration and a momentum building around your project. I definitely hope so. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm very excited about it. As always, we all have very limited time and a lot of ideas, but um, it's definitely something I'm going to continue on. And I'm very excited actually with actigraphy and some other wearables data that could be collected concurrently, um, the issues of integration, um, the issues of finding common patterns, um, even causal uh, relationships, what influences what. There's there's so many rich questions, um, but I think it's really important to, as you have said, understand the data and the clinical, um, in this case, the clinical landscape first, because then you can interpret better what you're getting. Yeah, actually, man, that, that got me thinking of something where, uh, you know, on the causal element, it would be really cool to have sort of like counterfactual uh, CGM data, where essentially you have patients over many days, and you know, for example, let's just take their meals, for example, and you could actually try to provide counterfactuals on the patient. This is what the patient would have was like with their meals at this time. And this might be what a patient is like without their meals. So for example, you could test does fasting at certain times reduce variability. That is a really interesting idea, actually. Um, 
I said it first. <laughs> no, yeah, no, it's cool. Uh, yeah, uh, well, you, you have a ton of undergrads. Get them, get them on that. Uh, yeah, but no, yeah, but you can. You can Some of them are graduated. I, I'll have more coming, but they, they've been amazing. Uh, and actually, a lot of them, I think this is the one of the, like, I care about the CJM data and clinical, but this is one of the most rewarding part because they will come to me and say they took stat classes, but they always been given like a data table. Uh, and I have like pages and pages of tidyverse that I make them do <laughs> before we even get to the analysis. So um, they were working on this GitHub repository where they were forking it and doing pull requests and merging conflicts. Uh, they were putting functions into the R package with Roxygen documentation. And it's, it's just, they were like, I've never done anything like this before altogether. And this has been really, really rewarding. Because we are not just researchers, we are also teachers. Yeah. I, um, having a project that allows you to do both has been really rewarding. Yeah, and honestly, I, I think that if um, undergrads, well, actually, two, two quick points. One, I really like the idea of getting people involved with data analysis, even if they're just getting started, where, you know, there's no reason that we need to have people prep for years and years of taking classes before they get started with the data analysis that they cared about. As we can see, like you and I have a, like a passion for this specific type of data and that's really energizing, helps you move forward. And I think that students are better off if they can actually develop something that they actually care about, you know, an application that they care about. And they say, you know, I'm gonna plant my flag in the ground here and that's what I'm gonna be good at for this time. I think that's really cool. And I just say, you know, if I saw an undergrad with, your R package and your CGM work in their CV, that would be an incredibly impressive thing. I, I, I would view that, I would put a, lot of, uh, a pot, put a lot of weight in that and believe that this is a person with a lot of potential and it's shown that they can be dedicated to a data science problem. Cool. I hope others view it the same too. I'm, I'm sure they will. Like the fact <laughs> is there aren't, there aren't so many great dedicated data scientists out there that you can just sort of ignore good ones. Like the moment you see a, 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 some light, it's like, oh, this might be a good one. Yeah, you got to grab them real quick. It does, doesn't matter where he or she is, just just grab them and get them on your team because that's um, it is it is a rare talent um, that people are looking for. But uh, Irina, I think we've covered quite a bit today. I think this has been a good conversation. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, a great scientist great. and data scientist. Yeah, well, thank you so much for um, giving me this opportunity. And uh, it's been quite different from what I've been doing earlier on, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to talk about it. And I think, I hope that this gives other people information. What is the data? What are the challenges? And some clinical relevance as well. Yeah, would you just as a quick, as a quick summary, would you say that uh, analyzing patient vital sign data has improved your life? Is, is, is your life better off now? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It made my life more enriching. There you go. All right, cool. I think um, I like learning personally. That's, that's the best thing um, for me is to learn. And being able to learn and go from um, subject-specific literature to statistic literature and connect, um, that's really, really rewarding. And I think when you can see an impact of your work, or where you can at least perceive the possible impact. Um, I think that does a lot for motivation and creativity. And it's just, it's different what it is for everyone. And I hope that everyone can find what it is for them. Because I think if you don't, if you're not excited about the data, 
you cannot do good science with it. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. Um, finding the subject, you know, the subject application matter that really hits that nerve, that really gives you the extra energy to be, you know, working. You don't mind putting in a nine to five or, you know, a nine to 10 uh, when, when the time calls for it, you know, it just, when it hits that nerve and really provides you that extra energy, that's where you uh, get where you can start delivering a lot of value. But uh, Arena, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was, this was great. Hey guys, it's Glenn. Thanks for your time today. I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please consider smashing that like button. It's the single simplest, fastest way to make sure that YouTube shows this video to more people. If you really want to go crazy, consider subscribing or going to our website and joining the mail list. If you want to go totally crazy beyond that, forward this to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy this too. We're a small channel and every bit helps. Our next episode will be coming out next week. So in the meantime, feel free to look around the channel and see other videos that might be of interest. As a quick disclaimer, the views expressed in the show do not represent anything other than the people saying those words, views, et cetera, like that. It doesn't mean anything about their employers or their employers' views or some thing about their employers or their neighbor's cat or anyone else not saying the words. And in fact, given that people tend to change their views when they're thoughtful enough, it might not even represent the views of the speaker by the time you're hearing the episode. So definitely come back and see if they've changed their views at a later date. They also don't represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. You can check them out on our website. Mm -hmm.